The reading today comes from Ecclesiastes 1 verse 12 to 2 verse 26. I, the teacher, was the king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learnt that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labour. And this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in darkness. But I came to realise that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For like the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. 
And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my efforts and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labour under the sun. For a person may labour with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labour under the sun? All their days their work is a grief and pain, even at nights their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Hi everyone. My name is Adam. It's so great to have you join us today, whether you're watching online or whether you're with us in the building. You know, it was in 1965 when the Rolling Stones first sang the iconic words, I can't get no satisfaction. Because I try, and I try, and I try, and I can't get no. Do, do, do. No, don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. Now, they sang those words over 50 years ago, back when Keith Richards was still in his early 90s. But we'd have to admit that those words are as true today as they were back then. In the words of a small Irish rock band named U2, we still haven't found what we're looking for. Our search for satisfaction continues. Now, Blaise Pascal, he was a Frenchman from the 1600s, an an incredible man, a mathematician, an inventor, a physicist, a writer. He said this. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, to be happy. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the universal human pursuit is to be happy, to be content, to be satisfied. And so the question that we have to wrestle with is, well, how are we going? Have we arrived? Are we a happy, content, satisfied people? Do we live in a happy, content, satisfied world? Now, the truth is, there are so many different things around us that promise to deliver satisfaction. They promise to give us what we're looking for. I mean, if you watch TV at night, there will be six ads in a row that promise to give you happiness if you will just buy the product or go on the trip. Now, we have to ask ourselves, do they really deliver? Do they give us lasting satisfaction? It makes me think of the story of Louis Zamperini. 
Now, if you haven't heard it before, it's an incredible story. Louis was an Olympic runner at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. He also enlisted in the US Air Force to serve during World War II. But in 1943, the plane in which Louis was flying on, it crashed into the Pacific Ocean. Now, amazingly, Louis survived unscathed. But he was now stranded in the middle of the largest ocean in the world. And no one knew he was there. Now, Louis ended up adrift on the Pacific Ocean for 47 days. His skin burned with blisters. He lost almost a kilogram of weight a day. He also had a few different enemies that were coming after him. Sharks would bump up against his raft from below. Japanese aircraft would take pot shots at him from above. But they weren't even the most formidable enemy that he was facing. Louis' most formidable enemy came from within. Thirst. Which is incredibly ironic if you think about it, because Louis was surrounded by water. All he could see in every direction was water. Cool, clear, crisp water. But though it looked like drinking water, though it felt like drinking water, Louis was surrounded by salt water, which means he could not even take a sip. Now, what would have happened if Louis took a a drink from the Pacific Ocean? Well, first, his insides would have dried out and he would have ended up thirstier than before. Second, if he kept on drinking, Louis would have had the worst hangover of his life. A pounding headache, dizziness, muscle cramps, hallucination, kidney failure. And if he kept on drinking, Louis would have fallen into a coma, experienced massive organ failure, irreparable brain damage. Eventually, drinking salt water would have killed Louis. But he resisted the urge to drink from the Pacific, and he survived. Now, I think this is the perfect picture of our predicament. We are surrounded by people, places, and things that promise to quench our thirst, that promise to satisfy us. They look like they will satisfy us. They even feel like they will satisfy us. But if we drink of them, we find that they do not deliver. And actually, like salt water, if we keep on drinking, they will eventually prove to be lethal. Now, this is what our passage is all about today. It's about the search for satisfaction, for meaning, for happiness. Last week, we kicked off our new sermon series called Chasing the Wind. We are diving into the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And the author of this book refers to himself as the teacher. Most likely, it was either written by Solomon or about Solomon, one of the wisest, richest kings to have ever lived. And this book is his exploration of life under the sun, life in this world, life apart from God. And, and he's wrestling with questions that we all wrestle with at some point. Like, if this world is all there is, if this life is all there is, what's the point? What's the meaning of life? Does it even matter? Now, last week we saw that the teacher's perspective on life is breath, breath, everything is breath. And the teacher brutally reminded us that for all of our toil, for all of our striving under the sun, the world will keep going long after we're gone and we will not be remembered by those to come. 
Now, if you missed that sermon and you'd like to be cheered up, then let me encourage you to go and to listen to it. Well, this week, the teacher continues his demolition job. He continues to burst bubbles. And the bubbles that he seeks to burst this week are the very things that we spend our lives chasing. The very things we often look to for satisfaction, for meaning, for purpose. This week, the teacher turns his attention to wisdom and knowledge, pleasure and enjoyment, work and achievement. Now, we spend a lot of time pursuing these things. And so the teacher wants us to examine whether we can really build our lives on these things, whether they satisfy our thirst. Now, let me be clear. The teacher is not saying that these things are bad things. Just like salt water is not a bad thing. Salt water is actually a very good thing. I mean, there's nothing like going for a swim in the ocean. People pay a lot of money to have a home with a view of the ocean. Even for Louis, the Pacific Ocean was his friend. It provided him with a relatively soft landing. It disinfected his sores. It soothed his skin. It was even a source of food from the fish that he caught. I mean, salt water is a good thing. We're just not meant to drink it. And in the same way, the things that the teacher will examine today, wisdom, knowledge, laughter, sex, work, these things are not bad things. They're very good things. They're gifts from God. But they're not God. And we're not meant to treat them like God. If we do, if we drink them in, then like drinking salt water, they will eventually prove to be lethal. So what we're going to do today is we're going to examine what the teacher has to say about wisdom, pleasure, and work. Why these things fall short and where he points us to instead. So we're going to explore this passage under three headings. The first, if you're taking notes, is this. It's the weight of wisdom. The weight of wisdom. Now the first stop in the uh, the teacher's search for meaning is university. He goes to the library. He embarks on a pursuit of learning and knowledge. This is what he says in verse 13 of chapter 1. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. The teacher set out to learn the very best of human knowledge under the sun. Now, the teacher values wisdom and knowledge so highly that he actually refers to wisdom twice in this passage. First in chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, and then again in chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. In other words, the teacher is a little bit like my three-year-old son, whose favorite question at the moment is, why? I say to him, buddy, can you go put your plate in the sink? Why? Because it's dirty. Why? Because you ate dinner from it. Why? Because you were hungry. Why? Because that's what happened. Stop asking me why. I mean, the teacher, like my son, had an insatiable curiosity for life. So he heads off to university to learn from the brightest and the best. And we see that he is a model student. Chapter 1, verse 16. I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. He's the ducks. He's on the dean's list. He's at the top of the class. 
And so what does he discover from the top? What does he find out? Well, he does acknowledge the goodness of wisdom. This is what he says in chapter 2, verse 13. I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. He's saying it's better to be wise than to be a fool. It's better to learn and to study than to not do those things. Education is a good gift from God that we should not take for granted. And so I'm sorry, kids, but you still have to do your homework. But as the teacher also discovers, wisdom and knowledge and learning have limitations. He concludes in chapter 1, verse 17, that it too is chasing after the wind. Now, why is this the case? What has the teacher discovered about wisdom? Well, he gives it to us there in verse 18 of chapter 1. He says, For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. The more he comes to learn, the more he comes to know, the more he becomes burdened and discouraged. Because the more he realizes how little he does know, and so much he learns he doesn't want to know. I mean, if you study history, you will not only discover all of the wonderful things that have happened, but also all of the evil and depravity that has taken place. If you study medicine, you'll not only uh, find out about the wonders of the human body, but also all of the problems that can go wrong with a person. If you study law and justice, you will be exposed to all of the inequalities in our world. It's like when you're a kid and you just want to know all that your parents talk about. You want a seat at the grown-up's table. But then you grow up and you get a seat at the table and you realize all of the problems that come with growing up. And you kind of want to go back to the kid's table. This is why we have the saying, ignorance is bliss. Because the more we know about things, the more trouble it brings. Now the problem is, we don't actually believe this deep down. In fact, we often believe the opposite. We believe that education can save us from our troubles and that it can place us on the path to happiness. I mean, this is why we put so much time and effort and money into education, especially the education of our children. This is why we might even place a higher priority on the educational development of our children, even over and, ab over and above their spiritual development. Because perhaps we believe deep down that the way to the good life is to get into the right school, to study really hard, to get good grades so that we can climb the ladder and get to where we want to go. And if we do that, then life will work out. But the teacher says there's just a couple of problems with this. First, he says that there are problems in life that cannot be straightened out by education. This is what he says in verse 15 of chapter 1. He says, What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. He's saying there are so many crooked things in life that we are powerless to fix or to straighten out. It doesn't matter how intelligent or clever we might be. I mean, depression, disease, disaster, addiction, anxiety, cancer, car crashes... All of those things do not care one bit about the degree that you have on your wall, about the position title that you have at work. 
and, and your IQ, your intelligence, it cannot straighten those problems out. I mean, do you remember Paul Kalanithi from last week? I told you a bit about Paul's story. He was a neurosurgeon at the top of his game. He graduated from Yale, Stanford and Cambridge. And at age 36, he was diagnosed with lung cancer and he died not long after. Which leads us to the second problem that the teacher sees with knowledge. And that is, it doesn't matter how smart you are, it doesn't matter how many degrees you have, how many languages you know, how many books you've read, it won't stop you from being placed in a box in the ground. Right alongside the fool and the village idiot. This is what the teacher says, chapter 2, verse 16. He says, like the fool, the wise too must die. You know, there's an interesting story about Alexander the Great. He was friends with a famous philosopher uh, named Diogenes. And he once found Diogenes standing alone in a field and he was looking intently at a, a pile of bones. Now, when Alexander asked him what he was doing, Diogenes replied and he said, I'm searching for the bones of your father Philip, but I cannot seem to distinguish them from the bones of the slaves. Death is the great equalizer. If you're smart and successful and accomplished in life, you might get a bigger headstone, but you'll still end up in the ground. And so here's the uncomfortable truth that the teacher is pointing out. If life under the sun is all there is, if we all die in the end, whether we're a professor or a paper boy, if this world is just one big graveyard, then what is the point of all of our learning and all of our wisdom and all of our knowledge? Yes, we might make the world a better place for those to come after us with improvements and technological advances, but they too will die in the end. So what's the point? And so this is the teacher's conclusion in verse 15 of chapter 1. He says, Then I said to myself, The fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, This too is meaningless. This is the weight of wisdom. And this is the first false trail that the teacher explores in his search for meaning. The second is pleasure. And this brings us to our second point, the emptiness of pleasure. See, after going to university, the teacher does what most university students do. He hits the town. He goes on an unbridled pursuit of pleasure. This is what he says, verse 1 of chapter 2. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. The teacher goes looking for pleasure wherever he can find it. And in the following verses, we see that he tries laughter. He goes to comedy shows and, and endless joking with his friends. He tries wine. He goes to endless restaurants, eating and drinking. He tries any and all substances to try and give him a kick. He tried great projects, verse 4. He built homes. He planted gardens. He spent a lot of time and a lot of money at Bunnings. He got himself servants and animals. He amassed silver and gold, verse 8. He made lots of money. He even had a harem. He had endless sex. First Kings 11 tells us that he, Solomon, had 300 concubines, 
not to mention 700 wives. Now, I know what you're thinking. That is a lot of anniversaries to remember. I mean, he went on a full-throttle pursuit of pleasure. It's what he concludes at the end in verse 10. He says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Now let's not pretend because we're in church. This sounds terrible, just awful. I mean, let's admit, this sounds pretty good. He is getting to live the human dream. He has so much of what we spend our lives often chasing after. And so we can learn from him. I mean, what did he discover? What did he find out at the end of this water slide of pleasure? Well, his conclusion is in verse 11. He says, Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Now that phrase, chasing after the wind, is the perfect way to describe a life in pursuit of pleasure. Because you can feel the wind, can't you? But if you try to grab it, if you try to take hold of it, you can't. And this is exactly what a life of pleasure is like. When you live for pleasure, you find that it feels good for a little while, but then it fades away. I mean, the tastes, the sounds, the sights, the smells, the feelings, the experience, they wear off. The laughter gets tedious and irritating. We all know what it's like to be with someone who who just cannot say anything serious. The wine leads to a headache or even addiction. You know, the Guns N' Roses song, which said, I used to do a little, but a little wouldn't do. So the little got more and more. The homes, they need upkeep and updating. The gardens, they get weeds and pests. The money gets spent or it gets saved, but it doesn't satisfy. The sex becomes empty and selfish. It's chasing after the wind. A life spent in pursuit of pleasure, it will not ultimately be pleasurable. It will actually end up painful and trivial and empty. In the book I mentioned to you last week by David Gibson, He writes and he says, Have you ever read the autobiography of a comedian? They are so often among the saddest and loneliest people in the world. I think of Robin Williams, who was hilariously funny. He made millions of people laugh. He was also desperately sad. He wrestled with depression and addiction for much of his life. And tragically, in 2014, he committed suicide. The pursuit of pleasure under the sun is a false trail. It's a ladder that leads nowhere. You know, there's a best-selling novelist by the pseudonym of Jack Higgins. He's written 85 novels, sold over 150 million copies. And when he got to the end of his career, he said this. He said, I wish I had known then what I know now. When you get to the top, there's nothing there. Cynthia Heimel, she was a writer for the New York Times. And she wrote a piece about how some of her friends, they were struggling actors and actresses. They were living in closets. They were working menial jobs. They were just trying to get their break. And she says how some of them made it. They did it. They made it big in Hollywood. They got their break. But she knew them both before and after their success. And she says that in each and every case, and these are big names. These are names that we would all know if if we were to say them. 
She says that in each and every case, they were unhappier, angrier, and more anxious than they had been before they were successful. Why? This is her conclusion. She's not a Christian. This is what she says. She says that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. The pursuit of pleasure is a pursuit of the wind. It's empty. And so, so far in his search for meaning, the teacher has hit the books and gone to university. He has devoted himself to knowledge and learning and study. He's also hit the town and gone wild. He's gone on a full-throttle pursuit of pleasure. And he's found that all of it is hevel, breath, chasing after the wind. But his search is not finished. He goes down one more false trail. He does what many uni students do after they've graduated and after they've kind of got the partying out of their system. He goes to the office. He goes to work. And this brings us to our third point, the vanity of work. Now let me be clear right up front. Work is a good gift from God. Work appears in the Garden of Eden before the fall. It's not a punishment from God. It's satisfying. It's necessary. It's valuable. But the teacher discovers in his search that it's not the solution in our search for meaning and satisfaction. This is his conclusion regarding work and achievement in verses 22 to 23. He says, What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. Now that's a pretty bleak description of work. He says work is grief and pain. Now we might agree with him if we read this on a Monday morning, but probably at other times we wouldn't agree. We probably all find work satisfying and enjoyable at times. So what's driving his conclusion? Why has he come to this conclusion. This is what he says in verses 18 to 19. He says, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. The reason for the teacher's despair about work is simple. He's saying you can spend your entire life, you can spend 50 plus years, 50 plus hours a week, you can build a company or a church, you can work on a job site or, or, or in a trade, you can serve others in a hospital, at a school, you can be the most devoted, dedicated worker, you can work with creativity, skill and knowledge, but eventually you have to hand it all over. And you have absolutely no control about what happens next. I mean, those who do come after you, they might take it forward. They might do it better, but they might not. They might blow it all up. You don't know, and you have no control. I mean, just consider the story of Solomon himself. Under his rule, 
the kingdom of Israel was magnificent. I mean, his kingdom was the envy of other kingdoms. It was talked about years and years and years after the fact. Even in Jesus' day, thousands of years later, they're still talking about the splendor of Solomon's kingdom. So how long did it last? How long did the glory and splendor of Solomon's kingdom endure? For how many generations? The answer? Not even one. His son Rehoboam, the next king in line, he was a fool and he made foolish decisions. And the kingdom of Israel was split into two. He lost 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. See, the harsh, the uncomfortable reality is that we spend our entire lives working and laboring to gain things that we cannot keep and to build things that we will not control. And so tomorrow is Monday. Have fun at work. (laughs) Now, obviously, the Bible has a lot more to say about work, but the teacher is trying to teach us something important. He wants us to know, he's trying to show us that we cannot build our lives on our career. And though it stings, this is important for us to hear. Because once again, we don't really believe that this is true deep down. At least we don't live as if this is true. And we can see this in our different attitudes towards work. I mean, some of us say, no, 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 not me. I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to be remembered. I'm going to make my mark. And so we pour all of our time and our energy and our effort into our career to try and secure some kind of lasting significance. We want to build what Johnny Cash calls a kingdom of dirt, a monument to ourselves. And so the most important people in our lives get neglected in our calendar. Anything that gets in the way of our work, it becomes an enemy. And the most important thing in our lives, the only thing that matters is success at work. You know, I read a terrible, or I heard a terrible story this week from a a book called Affluenza. A woman finally convinced her husband to take a day off, to spend the day with their son. They went sailing, and the boy thought it was the most wonderful day that he'd had for years. Now, sadly, soon after, the dad died of a heart attack. And the son was going through the diary of his dad a little while later, and he found the entry for the day that they went sailing. And the dad had written, a complete waste of a day. How awful. Tim Keller says about the tendency to overwork, he says, what is missing? That to be complete and to have hope and to have worth, you must go so hard. What is missing? Of course, overworking is not our only reaction. Others of us might say, well, if work doesn't really matter, if I'm not going to make any difference, if I'm I'm not going to take anything with me, I'm going to leave it all behind anyway, why bother? What does it matter? I'll, I'll just do the minimum. I'll just skate through. But you see, laziness and sloth, they're not the answer either. Work is not the enemy. Work is a gift from God for our good and the good of others. The problem is when we treat it as God. It cannot give us what we long for. And this is exactly the point that the teacher has been making. I mean, what this passage boils down to is this. When it comes to our search for satisfaction, our search for meaning, there are really only two pathways. The first is the pathway under the sun. The pursuit of finite, non-eternal things. Intellect, beauty, pleasure, 
possessions, wealth, work. And the teacher has been trying to show us that if we go down that pathway, it will be a dead end, literally. It will lead us nowhere. It will eat us alive. No one has said this better than the late author David Foster Wallace. Now, he was not a Christian, but what he said is just so, so insightful. He says, There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. I mean, this is the pathway under the sun, and that's where it leads. Thankfully, it's not the only way. There is another pathway. There is the pathway beyond the sun. There is the pursuit of the eternal, transcendent God. Or more correctly, his pursuit of us. You see, God has not left us alone under the sun. God has come for us from beyond the sun. Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth. He came to us who are parched and perishing, to us who have been guzzling salt water, to us who have been pursuing false trails. And he gives this invitation to all of us. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus offers us living water. And this living water comes only from Jesus. It's offered to anybody It's received through faith. It satisfies our thirst and it wells up to eternal life. It is the greatest gift in the world. And when we receive this living water, when we begin to walk the path home that leads us to God, when we begin to find our meaning and our purpose and our satisfaction in God, we are then set free to truly enjoy the gifts of God to enjoy wisdom and and pleasure and work within the boundaries and the limits that God has provided. This is the teacher's conclusion at the end of the passage, verses 24 and 25. He says, A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? You see, the gifts of God like wisdom and pleasure and work, like degrees and jobs and promotions, like money and sex and homes, they were never meant to give us ultimate satisfaction. They were never meant to satisfy our deep soul thirst. They were meant to be signs and pointers to the God who does satisfy us, to the God who is the giver of all good gifts. Augustine, the ancient theologian, put it perfectly when he said, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. 
And so as we close, let me take us back to the Pacific and to Louis. You know, as Louis floated on the Pacific Ocean, his only source of drinking water was rain. And for three weeks, he collected enough to survive, but then the rain stopped. Six days into the drought, Louis recognized that if he didn't get water soon, he he wouldn't be able to survive. So Louis prayed. He prayed if God would send rain, he'd dedicate his life to him. The next day, it poured down. Louis survived and he kept on floating. Eventually, he was captured by the Japanese. And he spent two years as a prisoner of war and he was treated horrifically. But in August 1945, Japan surrendered. Louis returned home. He was free, but not really. Louis was broken by his experience. He had violent nightmares. He developed an addiction to alcohol. His marriage was in tatters. And when he was at the end of his rope, something happened that changed everything. His wife invited him to a a series of Christian meetings. Now the first night, Louis walked out. But the second night, something clicked. Louis remembered his promise to God. He put his faith in Jesus. He received living water. And his life was changed forever. The violent dreams stopped. He overcame his addiction. His anger subsided. He even returned to Japan to meet with his former prison guards and to forgive them. And Louis died in 2014 at the age of 97 years old. And the living water in him welled up to eternal life. And the same invitation is on the table for you. This is the invitation Jesus gives to all of us at the end of the Bible. He says, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Let's pray. Father, there are some of us listening right now and we want to receive the free gift of the water of life. We want to turn from our avoidance of you, our rebellion against you, our drinking of salt water. And we want to receive the living water that Jesus freely offers, that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. And so Lord, some of us right now just want to say to you, Jesus, I put my trust and my faith in you. I can't do it. I'm sick of feeling tired and burnt out and unsatisfied. I want to receive what only you can give to me. Others of us, Lord, we we have tasted the living water that you have given to us. But if we're honest, lately we have been pursuing, drinking from the salt water of everything around us. And today we want to come back. We want to once again receive what Jesus so freely gives to us, the free gift of the water of life. And Lord, would you so fill us as a people, as a church, 
so that we might overflow with hope and joy and love, so that we might stand out and reach out to extend the offer that you make to everyone for this free gift, Lord. Fill us, use us for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me close by praying this blessing over you from 2 John chapter 3. May grace and mercy and peace be yours from God the Father and Jesus Christ, his Son. Amen.